Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts that you have allowed us the privilege to gather on this day, the Lord's day, to worship you in truth and spirit. And we pray, Father, that you receive our worship, not because of who we are, but because of Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we find in him that if we have confessed our sins, that He is righteous and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we come before You, Father, seeking to worship You, seeking to hear from You, and we pray, Father, that Your Spirit this day would come and give us understanding of Your Word, that He would open up our eyes and open up our ears so that we may receive that which You have for us. We pray, Father, that as we continue to look at this passage in Mark that speaks of our Lord and Savior there at Calvary as He suffers under the hands of men, under the wickedness of darkness, and under the wrath of God, that we would have a clearer understanding of all that He went through, so that it might cause us to see the great sacrifice that He made on our behalf so that we might be set free from our sins and so that we might live for you. So we pray, Father, that you would teach us your truth this day. We pray, Father, for this nation, and we continue to pray that you would be pleased to bring about an awakening. Revive your church, Father, so that your church might be light in darkness, and that we might be used, Father, to go forth and share the gospel with all nations. And we pray, Father, that the gospel would flood the nations and bring many into your kingdom to praise your holy name. We pray for those that are unable to be with us this day. We know that there are those, Father, who are unable to worship due to the coronavirus. And we continue to pray, Father, that you would bring an end to this plague upon the land. And, Father, that you would restore the land, that you would give us the freedom to be able to worship together again. But we ask, Father, that you bless those that worship with us by internet this day, that they might be included in this worship service. We pray for those that would be away and traveling, that you would give them safety and bring them back to us. And as they worship elsewhere today, that they would experience true fellowship and worship. We pray for those, Father, who are ill, that your healing hand would be upon their bodies and that you would restore them to health so that they may return to worship as well and that they may give you praise for your goodness in their life. We pray for those, Father, that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs, that you would bring conviction into their hearts, Father, and that they would repent and not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, but join us in worship as soon as possible. We pray, Father, for our sisters' churches that worship throughout the world, that you would speak through those pastors and that many would come into the kingdom of Christ, and that you would use those churches, Father, to advance the gospel. Thank you again for your goodness and grace in allowing us this time together. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 15, and we will pick up where we left off in verse 33 and reading afterwards. Mark chapter 15, 
beginning with verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, Look, he is calling Elijah. Then some ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Let me first say before I begin this morning that there was a couple of blunders I made last week. One is that I used Peter a couple of times when I meant John, so forgive me for doing that. Uh, I had in my notes the right name, but my mind did not dissimulate that and say the right word. It said Peter. It was uh, John that was at the cross there with his mother Mary. And also I said A.W. Criswell, it's uh, W.A. Criswell. I don't know how many of you were able to listen to that sermon that I mentioned last week, but it's W.A. Criswell and not A.W. A.W. Tozer it is, but not W.A. So let's begin the sermon this morning by looking at what we talked about last week, and that is the two criminals. And we saw the religious leaders and what they were saying to Jesus and how they despised Him. Sinclair Ferguson said they despised Him as prophet, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. They mocked Him as priest. He saved others, let Him save Himself. And they humiliated Him as king. If He is king, let Him prove it by coming down off the cross. So we see that they mocked all three offices of Christ, that of prophet, priest, and king as he hung there on the cross. All of these things were being said about Christ there in that first three hours from 9 o'clock till noon as he hung on the cross. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in London in the 1800s said, there would be no mistake about the fact that He was really nailed to the cross, for He was crucified in broad daylight. We are fully assured that it was Jesus of Nazareth, for both friends and foes were eyewitnesses of His agony. For three long hours the Jews sat down and watched Him on the cross, making gestures of His misery. I feel thankful that for those three hours of light and else enemies of our faith would have questioned whether indeed the blessed body of our Lord was nailed to the cross. And there are those that reject that Christ was nailed to the cross. Matter of fact, the Quran denies that Jesus hung on the cross, claiming that He was replaced by Barabbas that God would not allow such a great prophet as Jesus to die in such a way. So Muhammad denies the Scriptures. And of course, we deny the Quran as they deny the Gospels. 
I did not even realize that the Quran denied that Christ hung on the cross until I was doing the research for this sermon. And they're totally ignorant of the meaning of the cross. But others deny this truth as well, not only Muslims. They create their own Jesus. They want a Jesus that did not deny, die on the cross. They want to reject the biblical truth, wanting to accept a more likable Jesus, a Jesus did not suffer, a Jesus that would be positive in every way. Even some churches today ignore what Scripture says about what happened there on the cross. There are churches that actually will not mention the blood, will not mention the atonement or sin or the cross, saying that these things are simply too negative, so therefore let's not mention them, saying they want a more positive Christianity. Well, they don't understand true Christianity. They don't see that the cross is the most positive event in history. There's nothing that is more positive than the cross. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you don't have the cross, there's no forgiveness. If you don't have the cross, there's no hope. If there's no cross, there's no salvation, no heaven, no Christianity, and no purpose in life or death. That is why the cross is so positive. It gives us all of these things. And after Jesus Christ had been hanging on the cross for three hours, something happened that no one can explain. We see that darkness covered the earth. Now, remember, this is at the time of the annual Passover. The annual Passover happened at the full moon as well as in springtime. So it could not have been a solar eclipse, as some suggest. Matter of fact, an eclipse lasts how long, children? Do you, any of you children know that? Well, it lasts less than eight minutes. Did you know that? And we see here that the darkness was on the earth for three hours, so therefore it could not be an eclipse. There's others that suggest that it was a dust storm. Now, I remind you again, it was springtime and it was the rainy season. Therefore, this is also an unreasonable excuse that they would give. Again, it was three hours, so it was not a natural occurrence. It was the hand of God. God covered the sun so that it wouldn't shine forth during this most solemn event that was taking place. Jeff Thomas says, At Golgotha, day was turned to night. Creation was walking in step with redemption. As our Lord Jesus entered further and further into the damnation, as He sank deeper into the pit of desertion, so there was a corresponding darkness in creation. As well as one writer said, in Exodus from Egypt, the plague of darkness had been God's last word to Pharaoh before the angel of death visited the land. Therefore, only those who are protected by the shed blood of the sacrifice lamb would be delivered from the visitation of God's wrath. Now the Exodus was finding its utmost fulfillment 
in the exodus which Jesus was accomplishing at Jerusalem, there was a plague of darkness preceding the sacrifice of Christ as the Lamb of God. But this time, it was God's own firstborn who died. So as Jesus Christ hung on the cross at His weakest point physically, utterly alone, being assaulted by demons and evil men, He continued to be strong spiritually through all that He suffered there at Calvary. And even though He was in darkness, He never wavered. He never faltered. He continued to say, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Then God brought a halt to everything. Darkness invaded the light and covered the entire earth. The Greek word there, which means earth. So there was a great adjustment that was made. I mean, we're talking about 2,000 years ago. In other words, when the darkness came, a generator did not click on as it does in some of your homes. It was pitch black. No one could see. It was nighttime. And therefore, people had to stop their work, lay down their farming equipment, shut down the stores, close the shops and the markets and the bank, and begin to light their lanterns and candles. Animals began to do their nightly duties. Cattle and sheep were silent. Nighttime animals began to appear. All of creation was confused. All of creation was bewildered with what was transpiring. No one knew why the sun was refusing to shine. The holy sinless one, as he hung condemned, on the cross, at the epicenter of darkness. He who was the light was surrounded by darkness, both sinful darkness as well as physical darkness. Every day of His life, He walked in the light in fellowship with the Father. Every day He spent time with His Father in His glorious presence. In Him, the Scriptures tell us, is no darkness. And even as He hangs on the cross, He continues to be the light, even though He was consumed by this utter darkness around Him. And on the cross, as He faced the dominion of darkness, only God knows all that He experienced in relationship to darkness. As the Redeemer, He hung on the cross for three more hours in darkness in total silence. And during this three hours, he suffered the greatest pain ever experienced. This is probably why God veiled the cross in darkness, attesting what Jesus experienced, which was too horrible to be seen. No person has the capacity to obtain more than what God reveals to us in Scripture. But there's much given 
in Scripture for us to meditate upon as we see Jesus suffering in this darkness there at the cross. And Scripture teaches us that God was manifested in the flesh And in the flesh He dealt with our sins and put them away as He hung on the cross in three hours of darkness. That we can be certain of. Now with that said, I want us to look at these verses that are before us and how we should approach them. Remember, as I stated a couple of weeks ago, we are actually standing on holy ground as we look at Christ hanging there on the cross, and there is no event in history more vital than what begins to happen at noon. First, this darkness spoken of is God's judgment upon man's sin. Isaac Watts wrote, Well might the sun in darkness shine, hide, and shut its glory in. When God the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. I've been beside a few beds that the individual was dying. We call them deathbed experiences. And it's a very unique time. Some of you have been beside individuals as they were dying. And as that person comes to the end of their life, their breathing reveals that their soul is about to pass from this earth to the next place. And as that soul leaves the body, And as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it seems as if a curtain is drawn. There's quietness so that we might be able to meditate upon what is taking place. It's a most serious moment. And it really irritates me when people make light of those moments, when they they want to be to the other side, because God has made us to where we are to mourn. It's right to mourn. We are to go through a mourning period when a person passes away. We see it time and time again in Scripture. What happened when Lazarus died? Did Jesus begin to dance and rejoice and celebrate ways in heaven? No, he, he wept when he heard that Lazarus had died. And likewise, it's good for us to weep when the soul leaves the body. Now, don't get me wrong, we are to rejoice knowing that a person does go into glory, but yet at the deathbed and when a person passes from this life to the next life, it's a very solemn moment. Jesus, as he hung naked there on the cross for three hours, from noon to three, when the sun went out, when the Son refused to cooperate with any more than these sinners. It was as if God was saying, you sinners, you will no longer have the benefit of casting your evil eyes upon my Son. You will no longer be allowed to play your games and continue to mock 
Him. The entire creation is groaning and travailing in pain as its Maker is being murdered there at Golgotha. For in Him and by Him all things live and move and have their being. And the sun shines and the sun sets at His command. Jesus continued to reign there at the cross, even in darkness. He is able to see into sinful human hearts and keep them from committing more evil against Him and bring men even to salvation while He's there on the cross. It appears to be a dark picture as Christ hangs on the cross. But something happened right before noon, right before this darkness invaded the light. And we see the work of Christ. Even though He was weak, He had time for others as we talked about last week. And we see that the light continues to shine in the darkness as one of the criminals began to cry out to Christ and plead for mercy. Jesus' behavior had a positive influence Upon this criminal, he knew that he and his partner in crime deserved exactly what was happening to them. He knew that they deserved to be put to death. But at the same time, he understood that Jesus did not deserve what was happening to him. And he voices that. God had opened his eyes to see who Jesus was. He saw the light in his darkness and he experienced God's grace and mercy. This hell-bound sinner could sing, Lo, my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin. In nature's night, thine eyes diffuse a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what that prisoner could cry out on the cross and say. For Christ did another glorious work while there on the cross. Just before He would experience His greatest work ever. But He had time for this sinner. But yet even though this sinner came to saving grace, the consequences of his sin still brought death on him physically. Yes, God forgives sin. And if we are in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. But, there are the consequences of our sin. And it seems as if people don't understand that. I mean, this criminal was not set free because he came to Christ. He still had to pay the worldly consequences according to the law for his sins that he had committed. Now, of course, he was forgiven in the eyes of God, but he had to suffer those consequences. I mean, there's this mindset with some Christians today that if you are in Christ, then even when you sin, they are forgiven as if you don't have to suffer any consequences. And we have to understand that's not the sense. Now, we don't suffer the consequences of hell, but we suffer the consequences of our sin here on earth. If you're going down the road and you get a speeding ticket 
And when the officer comes to your car door and begins to write out, you don't say to him, oh, oh, wait a minute, officer, I'm forgiven in Christ. You can't hold that against me. No, you suffer the consequences of speeding, right? Now, yes, you're forgiven in Christ, but yet because of what you did, you have to suffer the consequences. I've seen this especially in the sense of ministers today. Ministers who have fallen into sin. At one time, when a minister fell into sin, you could say in one sense it was over for him. And rightly so. Because the minister is to be above reproach. Now there are some cases where a minister can be restored back into the pastorate. But yet, it depends on what that sin is. And again, we have to go to what God's Word says pertaining to that if one is to be restored. But in our day and time, it's as if it's overlooked and he can be back in the pulpit the very next Sunday. And that's doing great harm to the church. And that's sending the wrong message to those that sit in the pew. We have to understand, yes, there's forgiveness in Christ, but there still are consequences to our sin. Now the Jews had pinned all their hope on the coming Messiah. He would be victorious over their enemies. He would judge those who had sinned against them and they would prosper. But they had not listened to the prophets. Amos, we read earlier, said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be as though man fled from a lion and a bear met him. You picture that in your mind? A man fled from a lion and he thinks he's free, and then he comes face to face with the bear. Or as though he went into the house leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Man, that guy's having a bad day. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So we see that Amos is speaking of the judgment that is coming upon the people of God. Those who called themselves the chosen. He goes on in chapter 8. Verse 9, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and the darkness of earth in a broad daylight. Now I wonder what day is he talking about there? Could it not be this day that we're talking about here in John chapter 15? Of course it is. The Lord is saying, I will make the sun go down at noon and darkness the end the earth in broad daylight. So we see that judgment wasn't falling upon those out there. And we can be often guilty just like the Jews were. You know, Lord, you need to judge those out there. No, judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. God's, quote, chosen people. Scripture states, we must all appear before the judgment seat of the Lord. And I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. We need to understand that. The Scripture is clear. For every idle word. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me a little nervous. And it causes me to think, before I speak. Now, I don't think all the time before I speak. Now, don't laugh at me because you sometimes don't speak all before you speak, right? We can be guilty of that. But yet the Scripture says for every idle word. Recently, I was shown a post that a particular person 
post it. Nobody here would probably know this person, so I'm safe in saying this. And it said, I'm a Christian. I'm not a very good example of one. I cuss, I drink, and I'm not always in a good place. But I love God, and I trust Him even when it's hard. Now, I'll be the first one to say that Christians are not perfect. Matter of fact, we are sinners saved by the grace of God, and we are going to sin. But yet, at the same time, we must understand that we are called to be separate. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to be a priesthood of Christ, and we are to seek to live that way. And we should not post things such as this. I mean... Has this person read what I just stated? We must give an account for every idle word. For Christians to take sin lightly reveals that we don't understand God's word and may not even be a Christian. We are not to take sin lightly. And all the sins of the tongue are going to be revealed on that great day. And for many, it will be darkness, not light. God is light, and we are called to be in the light of His kingdom, and we are to penetrate into the darkness, and we are to pursue holiness and overcome sin. Put sin to death. Now, children, when light meets darkness, what happens? Can you answer that, children? When light meets darkness, what happens? Well, it penetrates the darkness. The darkness disappears. In other words, when you walk into a room that's dark and you flip that switch, what happens? Is that room dark anymore? If there's a light bulb up there, it's not. It shines and, and penetrates the darkness and the darkness is gone. Amos said, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. So therefore, light judges the darkness. That's an absolute certainty. And here at Golgotha, the darkness spoke of God's judgment. And at its heart is the Holy Son of God. God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He hasn't changed his mind about that from the beginning of his ministry all the way up to this point when he's on the cross. He still is saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So why is he at the epicenter of gloom? If he came to judge us, who would stand in his presence? Well, none. And we know that Christ did not come in His first advent to judge us because the Scriptures tell us there in John chapter 3 that God sent His only begotten Son into the world not to condemn the world, but what? But that the world through Him might be saved. And that's why He's on the cross. That's why He's suffering there under the judgment of God to save His people from their sin. So we see that Jesus Christ is suffering in this black judgment, but it is not for Himself, for He was holy. He was innocent. So it is for those in darkness, those in sin. He was made His own, bearing their sin and their judgment. 
As we've also looked at before, the Old Testament sacrificial system clearly reveals that the Messiah would come and fulfill the Old Testament by offering Himself as the fulfillment of the promise, of the shadows, of the types that were spoken of there in the Old Testament. You know, I can't help but wonder what in the world were the spiritual leaders, or I shouldn't say spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders and the others, had they not seen these passages in the Old Testament? Had they not seen Isaiah 53? Had they not read about the Old Testament sacrifice and what it would do? And of course, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear. There in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 4, For is it not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin? Therefore He, speaking of Christ, came into the world. He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offering and sacrifice or sin you have no pleasure. Then I say, Behold, I have come... In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Another question for you children. Now, of course, we all fit in the category of children in one sense. Did the blood of animals atone for human sin? Did the sacrifice of those Old Testament animals remove anybody's sin? No, those sacrifices did not bring about redemption. They did not bring about reconciliation. They could not propitiate God's wrath. But they did what? They pointed to the one that would be able to propitiate God's wrath. The one, that word to remember, we talked about propitiate. What does it mean? It means to satisfy God's wrath so that God would no longer be angry towards sinners to where He would judge them. So therefore, He's going to appease the wrath of God by being the substitute to take their sins away. So we see that as Isaiah 53 tells us, that there was a great antitype. The glorious sin offering, the servant of the Lord who would one day come, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So the darkness of Golgotha reveals the light of God's righteousness. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. The Scriptures tell us that the soul that sins shall surely die. But God in His amazing pity has dealt with sin in Christ. So we all sin, so why don't we die? Because, again, of the work of Christ. He died on our behalf. We died in Him. We live in Him because He is the Lamb of God. And then our second point, and there's only two points this morning, so don't get too concerned. This darkness reveals the work of substitution. Christ left His throne of glory there in heaven. He veiled His glory with flesh and came to dwell in darkness. He tabernacled for 33 years upon this earth. 
And he ended up at Calvary. Plunged himself into utter darkness for our sake. So he took our outer darkness and suffered under the judgment of God in our stead. Theologically, it's called substitutionary atonement. That's a pretty big word, isn't it, kids? Substitutionary atonement. But it's a very important word. Children, have you ever had a substitute teacher? Now, those at home school, <laughs> sometimes you have a substitute teacher. When mama wakes up ill, guess who becomes the substitute teacher? Daddy. I'm glad mama didn't wake up ill a lot of times. I'm glad she was well most of the time. I remember when I was in school and we'd have a substitute teacher. Now, I know none of y'all did what I did. I'd talk to my friend, you tell him you're Thomas, and I tell him I'm Harry. You never did that, did you? You play jokes with substitute. Well, you can't do that homeschooling, see. But anyway, what is a substitute teacher? One that replaces the teachers, substitutes on their behalf. So therefore, when we talk about substitute atonement, we say that Jesus is taking our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just the Jews, when we say He takes away the sins of the world, we're not saying that He takes away everybody's sin. No, we're saying that He takes away all the nations and all the people's sin. Various individuals, all of the elect sins are put upon Christ. I've stated hundreds of times, but hear it again. Jesus Christ came to save sinners by taking their sins upon Himself, paying their debt so that they would be set free. That is amazing grace. If we don't understand what we deserve, then we need to go back and read the Bible. All that sin must surely die. That's what we deserved. We deserved hell. If you don't think you deserved hell, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the Bible. You and I deserved hell. And Christ took our hell upon Himself and set us free. That's amazing grace. Now we see in that particular hour when the lights went out and after He, he suffered for three hours in that darkness experiencing our hell. We see there in verse 34 that at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ cried out. And as He cries out, He cries out to His heavenly Father. Now this is the climax here. R.C. Sproul says, At the climax of the period of darkness, Jesus cried in agony. Not the agony of scourging or the agony of thorns and nails, but the agony of forsakenness. The incarnate Lord was cut off for the sake of other men and women so that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever. No higher price could have been paid And we are called to never cease loving Him and thanking Him for this sacrifice and how true that is. We should never, never cease giving God praise and thanks for this glorious sacrifice. He uttered it with a loud voice revealing the pain and the agony and the anguish the greatest 
earnestness of His Spirit. It was a fulfillment of Joel 3, 15 and 16. As the sun and the moon shall shine, not, not shine in darkness. So during those three hours, Jesus entered into outer darkness where sin is condemned. And He did it on our behalf, in our place, in order that we might be brought into the kingdom of light and set free from our bondage of sin. So as our substitute, He submitted Himself to suffering and pain unimaginable so that we might not experience that suffering and pain that is unimaginable. So by this, He was able to give us the joy of the kingdom and glory of heaven. Matthew Henry says that Christ being forsaken by His Father was the most grievous of His suffering and that which He complained most of. He laid down the most doleful accent. He did not say, Why am I scourged? And why am I spit upon? And why nailed to the cross? Nor did He say to His disciples, when they turned their back upon Him, Why have you forsaken Me? But when His Father stood at a distance, He cried thus, For this as it would put wormwood and galls into the affliction of misery. So the Son of God suffered abandonment as a man so that he might, we might see the Lamb in all His glory. I mean, think of it. He who said, I am the light of the world is at the center of darkness. He's hanging there so that we might be delivered out of our darkness. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He delivered us by absorbing darkness into His life and defeating it. The light shines forth in darkness and the darkness could not extinguish it. So when we talk of Jesus' experience on the cross... The full extent is beyond our comprehension. I mean, it's like seeking to describe hell. We can only go so far. The only ones that can really describe it are the what? Those in hell. And we have, even there in Scripture, it being spoke of, from that particular way. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? And the rich man's in hell. And he says, would you even send uh, one to bring just a drop of water? Just a drop of water. The experience that he's having there in hell cannot be comprehended. And the experience of what Christ is suffering there on the cross cannot be totally comprehended. We just simply have to accept it and understand that there's nothing that surpasses the pain and agony that Christ was in there while He was on the cross as He suffered under the wrath of God on our behalf. He literally 
took our place. He literally suffered our hell so that we would not have to suffer hell. Now, what makes hell so horrible? Hell is where God's grace and pity are absent. His grace and pity are absent. We, we cannot comprehend that. Everyone enjoys common grace. As the scripture says, it rains upon both the wicked and the righteous. So everyone is enjoying God's common grace. Everyone gets to wake up and see the sun shining. Everyone gets to enjoy the beauty of the world. All of those things are common grace that we all, both the lost and the saved, get to enjoy. So it's hard for us to comprehend all of those things being gone. It's hard for us to comprehend God's mercy, grace, and pity being removed. But that is what hell is. Grace is the place of God's retribution. There's no love. There's no mercy. There's no hope of God ever relenting or interceding on those in hell. That is what the Son of God experienced in darkness on the cross. When the creed says that Jesus descended into hell, it isn't talking about Him going into a place of woe. As if hell can only be experienced in a specific place. No. It's talking about hell coming into Christ. Him taking our hell into Himself so that He might pay the penalty of our sin. Matthew 27, 42 speaks about how the religious leaders before the darkness came had mocked Him. And they said to Him, He saved others, let Him save Himself. Or, or can He not save Himself? Mocking Him. Mocking His office a prophet, priest, and as king. See, they took it for granted that he could not save himself and concluded that he had no power. But they knew. They knew that he had power because they had seen it. They had seen the miracles that he had performed. They had heard, if not seen, Him raise the dead to life. A person that does that has power. He had power and it was right before their eyes and they rejected that He had the power. They suppressed it to truth. And on one occasion, they even called Him that He was Beelzebub. They attributed His power as coming from Satan. Remember, that was an unpardonable sin in that. And they had committed it. Many of them had committed it. In other words, many of them had suppressed the truth to the point that they had hardened their hearts so much that they were beyond salvation. 
and therefore they were condemned to greater judgment. They could not believe that this Jesus was king of Israel. And they would not allow their self to believe it. They would not allow it because they could not see that the king, that the Messiah would suffer on the cross. It was too inconsistent for them. It was inconsistent with their own preconceived ideas as far as the Messiah's character. They, they rejected it. Again, had they not read Isaiah 53? You go up to the typical Jew today and ask them about Isaiah 53 and they'll just dismiss it. Oh, that doesn't even need to be in the Bible. Why? Because it condemns them as far as their theology is concerned. It condemns them as far as the Messiah is concerned. The suffering servant there. That clearly teaches that Christ would suffer all of these things. They said they would not accept Him as King of Israel. If He would come down off the cross and bring about His kingdom, we'll accept you. But, Christ clearly reveals that that was not God's purpose. No cross, no Christ, no crown. And we must keep that in mind. If there's no cross, there's no Christ, and there's no crown. Now what kept Him on the cross? Why did He not come down off the cross, as they said? Well, the reason why He stayed on that cross is because of His unchangeable love for sinners. He loved us with an eternal love that kept Him on the cross. Gave Him strength to face the darkness that He knew He had to face, to face our hell, to face the wrath of God. He did not fail, nor was He discouraged from His task because He was totally committed to save His people from their sins. So therefore, He spent three hours in darkness, in agony, wrestling with the powers of darkness, and he received the impressions of his father's displeasure, not against himself, but against the sin of us. And he made his soul an offering. Never were there three hours since the creation of this world. Never such a dark and awful scene. The crisis of that great affair of man's redemption and salvation. And at the end of those three hours of silence, he finally cries out. And he borrows this from David in Psalms 22.1, which teaches us a great truth. And that is that we can use the Word of God in our prayer. We should use the Word of God in our prayers. Use Scripture, especially when you're in turmoil and agony. Go to the Psalms and, and read those passages that David wrote when he went through those deep, difficult times in his life. And it will encourage you in your pilgrimage. Let me close by saying that all who come to Christ or to reign with Him. 
But if we reign with him, we must also realize that while we're here on this earth, that we must suffer with him. Paul speaks about that. And the example that Christ set before him and his willingness to suffer for Christ. And likewise, we must be willing to suffer for Christ, for Jesus Christ and his cross are nailed together in this world. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ and his cross are nailed together in this world. There is no place for half-hearted religion. It must be 24-7. It must be 100% commitment. Listen to what Thomas Guthrie said. If you find yourself loving any pleasure better than praying any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, any indulgent better than the hope of heaven, take alarm. Take alarm. If any of those things are happening in our life, we should take alarm. Be concerned about your own spiritual condition. Beware of starting to think you have gone too far in religion. You ever had anybody tell you that? Well, you're just going a little bit too far for me in religion. He said, be aware of that mindset. Or getting too extreme in religion. Now, it's okay for us to get extreme with sports and other activities, right? But don't get extreme about religion. Uh Uh-uh, that's what the devil would tell you. If you would be happy, if you would be a happy Christian, don't see how little your heart can do for Christ and be saved. There are those that have that mindset, and I question their salvation. If you have the mindset, well, I want to get by as little as I can do for the Lord, you better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He goes on, love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. I think we've heard that somewhere else, have we not? Are that not the the words of Christ? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Believe then God will add all the rest of these things. Say, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. May that be so in our lives. May we sacrifice all the things that this world offers to us. May they all be vain things for Christ. Folks, it's time that we contemplate the seriousness of our conversion. We may enter into very dark days in our life. God doesn't promise us that we're going to have it easy here on this side of heaven. Matter of fact, if anything, He promises us difficulty. And we must be light in darkness. Our Lord Jesus in His suffering was forsaken by His Father. Not that the divine unity between the divine and human nature was in the least bit weakened. No, He was now by the eternal Spirit offering Himself for us. On our behalf, He went through the horrors that He experienced for us. So what do we do for Him? 
because of His great salvation, what do we do for Him? Are we willing to live for Him and follow Him and honor Him with our lives and make a commitment daily to pursue holiness and be His witnesses in this dark world? May God bring conviction into our heart for our half-hearted religion so that we will be committed to the truth and live it out day in and day out because of that great and glorious work that He accomplished for us there at Calvary. Come to Christ today. Do not delay. Let us pray. Father, You have blessed us with such a great salvation. So amazing. So glorious. Words are almost inadequate to be able to describe what You have accomplished on our behalf. But words are all that we have. And may we seek to speak those words for Your glory and honor. May we be committed to Christ and who He is and what He has accomplished for us. May we continue to meditate upon this event that we have looked at today. And may it stir our hearts in such a way that we would repent and make a new commitment to You. Renew us, Father. Renew us by Your Spirit so that we might be faithful and committed just as Christ was committed to His task. And this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.